0: Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio, I'm Dan Skinner. On this show, we tend to tack back and forth between two poles of discussions. On the one hand, we have discussions about things people are doing to help individuals and communities, and we often learn about how they do this in spite of failures in our larger systems, especially our healthcare and public health systems. Oftentimes these are inspiring glimpses into impressive against all odds work. On the other hand, it's also important that we take time, as we do, beyond these critical but still reactive discussions, to talk about the larger challenges of democracy, justice, equity, and the law, including the governance of our institutions that are supposed to help us pursue a healthier, more equitable state. On today's episode, we're focusing on the latter, as we'll be talking with David Pepper about his new book, Laboratories of Autocracy. In the conversation, we talk about some issues we've addressed in past episodes, especially things like corruption and anti-democratic practices like gerrymandering, but David takes us way beyond this as well. I can't help but to mention that while we're watching the invasion of a democratically elected government in Ukraine, we should be having the kind of discussions David is asking us to have here, about the foundations of our political and civic life in our state and our country. We can't just blather on about democracy if we're not willing to take the time to protect our democratic systems here. And I hope it goes without saying that equitable health and effective healthcare systems are functions of meaningful democratic commitments. If you've read David's book, but also if you've just seen his fantastic whiteboard videos on social media, you know you're in for some real insight into these kinds of questions. I'll add as well that though David is the former chair of the Ohio Democratic Party, our conversation here is at its root not a partisan one. Instead, David's diagnosis of attacks on the democratic foundations of our institutions here in Ohio should be of interest and concern to Ohioans no matter where they sit politically. Before jumping into our discussion, I'll give you the standard pitch. Check out our show notes and past episodes at prognosisohio.com. And while you're there, please consider throwing us a few bucks on our Patreon site so we can keep making these episodes. A really easy and free way to support the show is by sharing this episode with others, but also giving us all the stars you can on your podcast app. You could do that right now. And this is going to help others find the show as well. And finally, while I'm the host, we really do want you to think of this show as yours. So please tell us what issues we should be discussing and who we should have on the show. Okay, that's enough pitching for now. Here's my conversation with David Pepper, author of Laboratories of Autocracy, A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines. David Pepper, thanks so much for being on the show. It's great to have you here. Good to be back. So I, I try my best, uh, as corny as I might be at times to avoid too many prognosis puns on the show. It's the, you know, the name of our show is Prognosis Ohio. But in the case of your book, it's really just too tempting. You begin the book with something of a love song to Ohio. It, it jumps off the pages. You you love the hell out of this state. You give us dozens of reasons why we should as well. But after telling us why Ohio is this big buildup, this fantastic, wonderful place you go into detail explaining why these malignant forces in our, our our state government, especially in the state legislature, are really working systematically to undermine it. And this is something I've heard from other folks a couple of weeks ago. We had Sherrod Brown on, on the show, and he pointed exactly to the same thing. Corruption in the state legislature is just a huge problem.
1: Uh, the, the frustrations as we've had a state government that is so badly because of corruption and because of indifference and because of misplaced priorities. It's the legislature is always seeming to think about how do we how do we stop employers from working to vaccinate their employees? How do we get more guns in people's hands? I mean, that's sort of the legislature's priorities instead of how do we make the state better? How do we make our public?
0: On this show, we tend to talk about health outcomes, disparities, uh, those kinds of things. Can you give us a sense of, kind of how do you take the temperature of the health of the state as we currently stand right now?
1: Well, I go through it in the book, you know, and it's, it's one of the many, uh, it's a terrible thing to have to say, but especially, you know, as I, I mentioned in the book that in a law school and I went to school out East, I was literally named most likely to be president of the Cincinnati board of tourism. Right. Cause I always brag about Ohio and, and I always have, and always will. And I do that, as you said, in the first half of that first chapter. Um, but when it comes to actual outcomes, Almost any measurement of outcomes in Ohio, those outcomes are plummeting. They aren't where they should be for a state with all that we have going for us. And, you know, one of the areas, and I go through, you know, a number of studies that on multiple health outcomes, um, you know, anywhere from infant mortality, a, a whole number of others, we are literally mired in the low 40s. And uh, in, in bl- black infant mortality, 50. Um, right. most years and I say in the state like here we have infrastructure like the Cleveland Clinic like Cincinnati Children's Hospital other hospitals In this sort of this it's sort of symbolic in this state we have wonderful sort of private resources and some public resources that you'd think well we'd have to be strong when it comes to public health well we're not and it's it, and again Measure after measure after measure confirms that we're not 28 or 30, we're 48 or 49. I mean, shockingly low. And the, the, the answer is, it's not that we have some innate weakness. And of course, opioid addiction, one of the mm-hmm. worst. You know, I, you can read the book and go through all the specifics. And that turns out to be not just about healthcare, Education, plummeting outcomes. One of the worst in the country with student debt. We're often number one ranked. One of the worst with college attainment. Um, our small towns are falling apart. It on and on and on. And and you know, without being too simplistic about it, you know, there's a disconnect because there are still these strengths that put us very high up on the list as a state, but the outcomes are terrible. And and as I try and explain throughout the entire book, so much of it comes back to a state house that is not about public outcomes, mm-hmm. and they are squandering. The great assets of a state, uh, in many cases, pilfering those assets and giving them away to private players who surround them. Let's let's give an example: for-profit charter school online operations who right. are getting a big amount of public school money, and so the public outcomes are not reflecting the strength of the state. And it's it's mainly reflective. And if you if you start failing in everything, something deeper is wrong. Right. And what we have wrong in Ohio is truly broken government, and as I make the case over the course of the book, undemocratic government, corrupt government—not just corrupt in terms of of you know HB six and First Energy, but corrupt in that their number one sort of mo of this state house is taking major public assets and resources. In forking them over to private players who profit out of it. That, it's sort of bigger corruption than just the individual gotcha scandal. And so part and parcel with that mode of giving away pr- public things to private players so they profit and broader down, trickle down economics, is that public outcomes will continually fail if that's the MO. And as I try and make the case in the book, all of this is resulting from uh, a system in Ohio and many other states – where because of gerrymandering and a number of other factors, state houses have really stopped being essentially healthy or even even meeting the most basic definition of a democracy. And that's why these legislators, they're not behaving as people in a healthy democracy would behave. In fact, on so, in so many ways, they're behaving the opposite. Yeah. And so outcomes failing, private players living large, politicians reelected no matter what, And the point of my book is to say until we wake up to this, we're going to keep seeing these terrible public outcomes in the state that should rightfully be be demanding a lot better.
0: One of the reasons why I love your book is because I'm a political theorist and you are tapping into some real core – kind of foundational values that people talk about when they talk about the United States, talk about representative government or what a republic is or autocracy versus democracy, obviously. You know, and, and I think about the way in which these debates get cast in a lot of these discussions, you know, well, there's just a difference of view, Republicans versus Democrats, like, like, as though this is a a simple ideological difference. But what you point out in the book is actually, this is about corruption and the undermining of the core values that people are supposed to adhere to no matter where they fall from a partisan perspective, right? Right? It doesn't fan out that way. I mean, is that a fair way to talk about what you're up to a little bit in the book?
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't even expect, so I've done a lot of talking about the book since the book came out. And this is w- one way I'd say i describe it that I don't quite say in the book, but I now think as a as a way to sum it up is one side of the political world, and it's not just party line, but one side sort of views democracy as a stable backdrop to everything we do. And we are working to win elections so we can get outcomes that we think – are good outcomes, and then you run for re-election because you think that outcome is something that's worthy of re-election. The other side, and this is pretty dire, but I think it really is accurate. The other side is sort of like the the Koch brothers and s- uh, some other elements. That, frankly, as I put in the book, they figured out that their agenda would not survive in a world of robust democracy. It's mm-hmm. the outcomes are not good for most people tr- of trickle-down economics, of of privatizing everything, of 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 you name it, the, the model we're seeing. So their agenda will only be put in place in a world with some kind of a subverted democracy. So while one side is assuming democracy is intact and fighting for elections, the other side is actually using power to undermine democracy itself. They have to rig elections and districts they can't lose. They suppress the vote of those who might vote against them. And so in many ways, that's the battle. and, and, that's what and if you want to achieve that they figured out the best way to achieve that is through state houses they're kind of easy to lock up and once you mm-hmm. have them locked up they have enough power through the districting process through the voting rules process to continue to lock themselves up so they can keep achieving outcomes that are not good but because they're in these rigged state houses they are immune from the elector from the voter so it doesn't matter so in many ways, that's also the battle. It's one side is b- battling for elections to get things done. The other side, knowing that their agenda wouldn't survive real elections, is actually using power to undermine democracy itself. And part of the point of my book is until the first side really understands that the second side is playing a t- totally different game, it's yeah. a deeper game, it's a 50 state game, it's an every year game. Until the one side figures out, you know, democracy isn't intact. It's not perfectly safe. One side is trying to undermine it. You've got to get in that fight and then win the elections to get what you need done. But if you don't get in that fight, they're going to keep doing what they're doing in places like Ohio and until everyone sees that for what it is, organizes and participates and legislates accordingly. The, one, the side that's pulling democracy down to, to, do, to, to achieve these terrible public outcomes that happen to also dovetail with them doing quite well in life. Mm-hmm. You know, trickle in economics, HB6, for-profit charter schools, making people millions. Until we get into the game of, of, of frankly, fighting for democracy itself, that other side will keep succeeding. And that's really why I wrote the book so sort of frantically to get the word out that that's what's happening. And it's happening through state houses because going back to the founding fathers, people have people, some people figured out that state houses, unfortunately, while they can do good things in the right hands are also the Achilles heel of American governance in the wrong hands and can be used to subvert democracy in ways that we're seeing play out all over the country right now, including Ohio.
0: You know, talking with students that I work with, but also just being active politically around the state, one of the things I've noticed is, you know, people – Obviously, they get motivated by specific issues, things that touch their lives in very specific ways. But I've often struggled, and I'm a political scientist, so this is a, a real failing on my part, but I've struggled to help them to understand, look, no, we need to talk about core things like democratic systems, about uh, the franchise. We need to talk about the ways in which transparency works in state government or anti-corruption laws. And, and in this book, you're, you're doing that groundwork, but I wonder, you know, especially as somebody who worked with the Democratic Party for so long right. and has had so many of these conversations, how do you get people to draw that direct line that is there between right. these democratic systems and something like, abortion access or addiction services right. or uh, racial and ethnic disparities and in infant mortality?
1: That's a great question. And it, I actually put some time in this. So my book is not just about doom and gloom about all the problems of these state houses and how they're being used by these broader forces. The last third is all about how we how we fight back. And one of the most important parts of that part about fighting back is, okay, given all this, how do we message to, to win and to make it translate? And the bottom line is, and I say this sort of very self-aware, what I'm saying right now should not be in the 30-second ad to win an election Yeah, because it's, a, like you said, I mean, for some, it's going to feel much too partisan, much too red hot, much too worried. But here's how you win an election based upon what we're talking about. It's those failed public outcomes. It's the fact that part and parcel with undemocratic and rigged corrupt state houses – are outcomes that are failing most Ohioans or most Kansans or most Wisconsinites. Sure. And the smart campaigns can't just run ads about corruption, corruption. Voters think everyone's corrupt. I, I actually get why. Yeah. They, they, they hear it too much. They think oh, every politician is corrupt. But if you run the ad on the result of that corruption, this, our schools were ranked fifth in the country 10 years ago. Now they're in the mid-20s. Um, your small town is dying because this state house is giving away your money for tax breaks instead of investing in broadband and infrastructure. Right. Or as Laura Kelly, the governor of Kansas said, when she won that race amazingly, why do we only have school four days a week for goodness sakes? It's focusing on the public outcomes that will inevitably collapse in this gerrymandered trickle down world. They're creating in state houses that in, in, you can explain to some it's because of the corruption, it's because, of, but with others, just run the ad saying what Laura Kelly's ad in, in Kansas was, I'm from Kansas. For me, Kansas values were always about good education. So why in the world are we down to four days a week while you're paying more and you're probably paying for sports for your kids? She didn't even talk about like partisan things. And Kansas said, yeah, why are we at four days a week? The public outcomes that are failing, that, it, that impact everyday people of all parties, is a really good strategy of how you translate the corruption that feels too sort of partisan in, in our inner politics into something that average people care about. And that's the model that I would suggest that people do, especially in states like Ohio. You know, If I were Nan Whaley or John Cranley, and they're doing this to some degree, I wouldn't just say corruption, corruption, corruption. I'd say, look at Manchester, Ohio. Look at other small towns. They're dying.
0: Mm-hmm. They
1: have no, They are being given nothing by the state because this state house is too busy giving away the store to their big donors. The second half of that sentence, by the way, doesn't even need to be in the ad. It's let's lift up towns that are dying or schools that are falling apart or health outcomes that are literally nowhere where they should be.
0: So, in a way, we have tons of data now, right? We know where we stand, and right. I guess I'm a, a, always a little bit baffled that more folks in the State House don't seem embarrassed by that. you know that like, that's actually their job. That's like on their resume. what did you right. do in the State House while well, these are the data? But also in your book, you point out that there's this massive divide, disconnect between responsiveness. I mean, you, you show that, you know, on, on any number of issues, you know, uh, abortion access, addiction services, the, yeah. the legislature, because of gerrymandering and, and and corruption, are not being responsive to even just what the people want. Right. Of course, they also provide alternative explanations. Well, this is really why this is bad right. instead right. of the real thing. I mean, how do you work through that?
1: In a world without democracy, which is essentially what Ohio State House is, where everything, where your election is guaranteed, What we have learned over the last decade, which I think would even surprise the Karl Roves who drew these lines and and others, almost every incentive that we assume is a good incentive in a healthy democratic system is the opposite in a world without democracy. Why are these health outcomes not better? Why don't they try? Because they will get reelected even with the worst outcomes. There's no incentive in an undemocratic world to actually fix public outcomes because your own voters back home have never heard of you. And even if they have, you're going to get reelected no matter what. So there's literally no accountability for bad public outcomes. So that's not something they care about. In a world of real democracy, if the state or city you were in charge of was failing, you'd actually get voted out of office. On the flip side... Where is there a motivation? You're worried about your next primary. So they have every incentive in the world to be extreme, to never be outflanked. In a world of, of normal democracy, you actually have more incentive to work with the other side because the general election is what you're worried about. What Also, in this world they're in, you have an incentive to make these big private players very happy mm-hmm. so they keep you protected going forward in, in multiple ways, not even your next election. And so- you have an incentive right now to cut deals with private players. And I'll go back to the school example. If you make ECOT happy by giving them a lot of public school money, you get a lot of that money yourself, which they all did. If your public school fails because of it, it doesn't matter because you can get reelected anyway. So the reason the outcomes keep going down is there's no incentive to make them better, but there's a lot of incentive to actually help the very entities that are leading to those public outcomes going down like rip-off for-profit charter school scams. So everything's backward in this non-democratic world, and that's what – their goal are not better public outcomes. I mean it sounds crazy to say that, but when you study how they operate, it's not a coincidence that public outcomes are failing across the board. It's simply not part of the equation – if you're a State House member, the, the big the groups that are in their face, whether it be the NRA or pro life or big financial players, they know that these people can get really unpopular things passed and never lose. So if you know that your agenda is full of unpopular things, you know, gun laws that only 20% of the people support. Getting rid of Roe v. Wade, which is a minority view, giving away the farm to private players, the one place you can go to get all that stuff done. And the people mm-hmm. who do it never worry about the reelection. Is a state house, so they've become the vehicle. This, they, these guys are focused as much on state houses now as they've been on Washington, because the state house is the place where you can go to get really unpopular things accomplished, mm-hmm. anti-majority things accomplished, and and so to keep it all going, though one key is keep these places in a way that they're no longer democratic, so they can keep passing these unpopular things. And, and here's the sad news. It's, ha- it's not happening one state at a time. The, the yeah. larger players through groups like the American Legislative Exchange Council figure this out a generation ago. And they've been doing it for years and they've been perfecting it ever since.
0: As I was reading your book, you know, I kept thinking about the Medicaid expansion experience we had in 2014. This is, to me, one of the, the rare silver linings in the Kasich administration's otherwise, at least in my view, lamentable record on healthcare. care. Right? And, and when you look at uh, when Governor Kasich pushed to expand Medicaid, he called it a, a life or death matter. Fought with his own party to do it. I, I thought that was an interesting moment within the context of these kinds of uh, laboratories of autocracy you're talking about, because at least on its face, it seemed like something that was based on principle. Of course, there's right. a broader discussion about why a Republican governor might do this, but I wondered if I could get you to talk just for a moment about that moment.
1: I mean, I give him credit. Uh, I, one of the one of the points in my book is to say, listen, the reason we once we view this as a battle for democracy. It may lead to strange alliances beyond party, and mm-hmm. I'm all about that. I, this is deeper than just one party versus the other. And if there are Republicans who all of a sudden show some religion on deeper democracy, let's go for it. And so I've always given him credit on that. I think mm-hmm. – for him, I think it was a matter of the budget as well as trying to do the right thing, but right. good for him. And when you study the ALEC model and when you study the the, the philosophy of those behind you know, the Koch brothers and other state houses – any expansion of government for them is like, you know, the third rail. Mm-hmm. So they've got their knee hooks in these state houses, and it's cl- it was clear from that debate that the that the power of the far right ideology, it's not it's partly about health care. It's partly about just the size of government. They don't want much government because then they want to then they'd rather have the money for themselves. Okay. Yeah. Medicaid expansion was basically the opposite of that direction. So they had been fighting. If you look at ALEC, again, ALEC is this group that is basically privatizing legislation processes all over the country of state houses. They were pushing Medicaid expansion opposition resolutions all over the country for years throughout the Obama presidency. One of their main drives was stop this expansion. So what Kasich ran into – was he ran right into to his credit? He kept fighting. He ran right into a core Alec right wing passion that every state house was basically pushing. And good for him. He fought hard enough to go sort of. He sort of backdoored it. But that's how powerful um, that group is. That that in almost every other Republican state they succeeded because again, it's core. This is core for them that that. Um, you just don't expand this stuff. You 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 want government as small as possible. And, uh, the Affordable Care Act and Medicaid expansion are the exact opposite they want to see done. And they they tried to stop it in Washington. This is a good lesson for them. They couldn't stop it there, but almost every state house that they controlled did stop it in those states, and that mm-hmm. showed them once again, D.C. is tougher. But man, most state houses, even against a sitting governor. Would rather fight for you than even against the governor of their own party. and that's that's really what that's a great example. yeah,
0: and I'll also mention on the on the Medicaid piece, improved and saved a lot of lives in Ohio, which, as your book makes clear, from the sort of looking back at what we do really well as a state or have done really well. Right. That's what this is supposed to be about, and the numbers are in on this. We know now that it was the right move.
1: It's the number it's the number one source of treatment for addiction in Ohio. And every day I watch Rob Portman, who does – if you watch Rob Portman, he's a, he, Koch Brothers, one of his biggest supporters, he basically does whatever they tell him. And he fought Medicaid – Rob Portman has spent his entire career saying, I'm for treating those who are addicted, okay? He talks about it every day. But he opposed the, the Affordable Care Act, which is the number one re, uh, source of support to treat those with addiction. And okay. all these guys talk about opioid addiction – they, they, because it's in their communities, they all voted against the number one way people are getting help. So yeah, it's been a huge, and that's why I give Governor Kasich a credit. I've done it for years, and he did he did make an effort, and he he fought hard enough, and clearly he's a stubborn guy, and he stood up to a state house that on too many other issues are just running these people over. I mean, Mike DeWine basically has not been as willing to fight the state house, and that's why on issue after issue, whether it be guns or gerrymandering right now or even his response to the covid pandemic he has caved again and again and again i know it's not easy dealing with these people but but give case a credit on the thing he cared most about he did stand up and he backdoored it through a, a process that, that ultimately got it done
0: You kind of uh, led me nicely into my last question for you, which is obviously we need to talk about the pandemic for a moment. Um, You're publishing this book at a time of historic health crisis. Here's my take, right? And I want to see, I want to get you to react to this. So, you know, when you think back to March and April and May of 2020, I I gave uh, Governor DeWine a lot of credit. And of course he was working alongside Dr. Acton. And there was this national recognition that Ohio was doing something really well. In fact, there was talk about, you know, uh, leadership that Ohio was, was showing the way through this pandemic. Uh, of course, we had no idea how long it was going to last or any of that. But, you know, Dr. Acton left, and uh, I think it was June or July, and, and 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 the governor started marching step in step increasingly with the the fringe elements of his party, which really undid a lot of that good work. And And I wonder, is this a laboratory of autocracy in a way? I mean, when you think back to the main themes of this book, was there a moment of, we are being responsive and responsible and, and, and doing our jobs and then kind of a folding back into line to the orthodoxy within the, the state house culture.
1: Absolutely. I mean one of the lessons and I go through a lot of lessons learned in my book, and one of the lessons is dedicated state houses can run over statewide officials. They they just can't. They have enough they have enough leverage, they have enough budget control, they have enough political power, especially with primaries coming up, which DeWine is in, to ultimately run over. Um, the other statewide officials. Again, even though everyone knows Mike DeWine, no one knows their state rep, those state reps can run him over. And it takes a real fighter like John Kasich on Medicaid expansion, just as an example, to actually fight back. DeWine for a few months did stand up to them. And then basically with Dr. Acton no longer to side and a primary coming up and plumbing poll numbers, he's basically caved and he stopped he still says good things, but just like you and I could, you know, say, you're a governor, act. You can do orders like he did early. And so Ohio, without him standing up, you know, we've had more hearings on on crazy vax conspiracy theories than we have about how to make ourselves safer, et cetera, et cetera. So he basically, it's a case study, like you said, that these state houses run over state officials, and unless those state officials are very strong, those state houses will grind them down to basically do what they do. And that's why Ohio is now, by, again, any measure, one of the worst when it comes to vaccination rates, hospitalization, deaths per person. We are among the worst states. And we worked at first, because, and there was some leadership there. And I was, I was praising DeWine. I, I was communicating okay. with him, trying to be helpful. Uh, we tried to make the election, the primary election safe. but since since about you know early early midsummer of of the pandemic, it throughout it's just gotten worse and worse and worse. And now he's just uh, he basically is just letting it go. and and uh, it's a shame. I, I respected how he, I, I think we saw some of who he can be mm-hmm. at a moment when he knew it was serious. And then I think we saw his political side, which is this survivor. I will do anything I need to to survive an election. And once you show that side to a statehouse, they've got you. They will, they will literally grind you away. And that's what they've done. But it's a perfect example. You know, this happens on in other areas. Frank LaRose talks a big game about he wants to do this and that. And he wants to, like, uh, have, have people be able to, you know, request absentee ballots online. But when push comes to shove... The state house runs him over and he says, okay, he voted for a gerrymandered map, even though he promised he would do fair ones. The state house told him to vote for it. He votes for it, he, even though he called it privately asinine. These statewide officials are caving and that's pretty typical that the state houses end up being the quiet controllers of these states. And it takes a – and by the way, if, if you have a Democrat – and I go through this in the book – when Democratic officials won statewide in 16 and 18 – after a decade where they weren't in power, and stood up to these state houses. What did the state houses do? They actually started passing laws, stripping power from those statewide officials. So when they're stood up to, they actually will then start undermining the power. And in Ohio, where'd they do this? We won three Supreme Court seats in two years. What are they doing? Changing the way we elect courts so it doesn't happen again. So if they can't grind away at someone in their own party, and someone from their other party stands up to them, they then start passing laws trying to take away the power. I mean, so it's really insidious, and they are just power hungry. And even when you know, and by the way, I, ironically, and I know we're, we're hitting the deadline here. Um, in Wisconsin, for example, the governor of Wisconsin, the Democrat, won a majority of the votes in 18 to become governor. The state house in Wisconsin, the Republicans, actually won a minority of the votes. But their rigged system still gave them a majority in the, in the legislature. That minority quickly went to work to undermine the governor who actually reflected the majority. So yeah. they know they're the minority. They just don't care. They're they are holding onto power as best they can. And if that means ignoring, like we're seeing now, what voters voted on in constitutional referenda or attacking popularly elected statewide officials – They'll do it all if it means they keep their grasp on power. That's how out of control these places have got.
0: So the title of your book, just to kind of wrap up here, you know, is a a, Laboratories of Autocracy is a play on Justice Lewis Brandeis' famous Laboratories of Democracy idea. And the idea there was, you know, states can be innovators and show the way to create, you know, and we have this idea that some states might find a better way to do something and other states will then, of course, because they want to do better, um, model themselves after that. And, And what I was kind of pointing to with the early pandemic is that there seemed to be that kind of a leadership role for Ohio. I think the thing that really gets me, and I just, I want a quick reaction from you, if you will. We already know how the history books are going to look at this. It's, there there was this real effort and i think a lot of people felt pretty proud of their state in those first couple of months but not only have we failed to do the best we can with vaccinations and 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 all the other metrics of the pandemic uh, disparities but we are the, the state legislature actively put laws on the books that will make it harder, if not impossible, to react to the next pandemic. We're still in the middle of a pandemic, and people are wondering what the lessons learned are, and they are making sure we don't have any of those tools for the next one. I don't even know what kind of governance model that is, but if that's what's coming out of this laboratory, right. you know that's a really, really bad thing.
1: It is, and I really am glad you bring that up. So the autocracy, you, you, you're correct about the title, and I, the book is very intentional that the word laboratories is also a really important part of it. Because there's no accountability in these state houses, they can do the craziest things. Like, you know, Senate Bill 5 was totally unpopular, got crushed in 2011. Ohio believes in collective bargaining. We learned that. Everyone but one person who voted for it got reelected. So we know that they're not accountable. And that gives them the space to always be trying new things. And when they fail, like a laboratory, they learn from the failure. Oh, that didn't work we'll come back yeah. again next year and do it. That worked? Oh, that worked in Iowa? We'll do it here. That got struck down by the court, we'll change the language so we uh, we accommodate and fix the mistake. So, yes, they are they are always getting better and that also means they're accelerating. They're like you know, you t- Frank Larose said one drop box per county, it led to long lines and traffic jams. Most people would say that's terrible. Uh, Don't ever do that again. What are state houses around the country doing? Same rule in law. Why? Because they like the long lines. They want African-Americans to wait in a long line to vote at a drop box. So the point is, whenever they do, I mean, it's almost like, you know, we say best practices. They share worst practices. Mm -hmm. They share the things that do damage to democracy or while helping private players. And if it works or it's upheld in court or it looks to be effective, other states do it. And so they are always acting as laboratories, and they're oh, and that's accelerating, and you and it's now more organized than ever. You know, it's not that Frank LaRose is telling people about the Dropbox stuff. He was advised by one of the key voter suppressors in the country, who who's in a think tank in Washington, who clearly clearly is sharing the great success of traffic jams at Ohio polling locations with other states. So they they really are doing this on steroids at this point, and that's why. We will not stop it until we actually bring accountability back into these state houses. Meaning, you pass a crazy law, you yourself actually are worried about your own reelection because of it. Until there's some sense of accountability for your behavior, you, they will keep doing it. And if there isn't, you, do you think these guys care if a law is struck down by the Supreme Court? They don't care. The taxpayers are paying the, the bill for the defense of it and they get reelected and they get to tell their extreme, you know, the base that they're appealing to, hey, we tried to get rid of abortion after six weeks or we tried this. They don't care at all. And if half of them don't even have a challenger in their gerrymandered district. So they don't face the problem at the election until we make them actually think, wow, I lost office because I did something that was insane. They are never going to stop. And by the way, one other thing we should be doing and it sounds a little bit much, I'm glad that there are people saying Madison Cawthorn should not be able to run for Congress because he was involved in an insurrection. Mm-hmm. That's accountability, okay? That's not a crazy thing to say. In the long arc of history, that actually is what you'd expect people to do. Well, I believe Ohio should say to Matt Huffman, you're ignoring of the Constitution and this gerrymandering process has been so egregious you violate the constitution knowingly again and again and again you know private meetings not even attempting to follow it there's a law in ohio called misconduct in office and misconduct in office is defined as you you are not fulfilling a legal obligation that is on you well, well he's not it's obvious <laughs> and what the way you 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 enforce the law of misconduct in office is you gather signatures in the district of the person who's guilty of it and once they're gathered you have a trial for their misconduct and if they're guilty they're removed from office and if that trial were to occur all we'd have to do is point to the supreme court of ohio for the evidence of how many laws he's ignored in this process uh, that's accountability
0: yeah it's yeah. and
1: it's and I'm a lawyer he it's it's also accurate he is literally openly you know, violating, defying, thumbing his nose at the most basic requirements of the Ohio Constitution. But he does it because he's never held accountable. And I hope, you know, at some point, if he keeps doing this, I hope he's found a contempt of court too, by the way. Hmm. But the accountability back on the individuals that are behaving this way is the key. It's the key to how they get away with it, how they keep doing it. And I think it'll be one of the keys to stopping it is if they start to think, Wow, there are consequences for me acting this way that they've never felt before.
0: At the end, I, I just want to assure listeners, you provide a really detailed list of things you can do, steps. I mean, the cynic in me wants to say, oh, come on, come on, but I know we have to do something because this you've made the case that this is unacceptable. So I I just want to let listeners know that there, there's also a part of the book and you know, where it's very pragmatic. It's very much like, look. If, if this pisses you off and it should, then here are the things you can do. Right. So I, I want to thank you for, for giving us that as well.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I, I did put a lot of time into that part and I hope people buy the book. Some people tell me, I re I don't, I skip ahead because I want to feel better and it does make me feel better. But the way I would close is is and the book goes through the specifics. It's basically saying, you know, the Senate has to do X, people who give a lot of money have to do Y, but if you're not a billionaire, if you're not a Senator, were, don't just wait around for them. If you're not Stacey Abrams, and none of us are, there are things that you can do in your life, and, and I'll put it this way. Every one of us has a footprint in our life that we that we impact our community. Some of them are elected officials. Some of them are individual activists. Right now, challenge yourself. In my life, in what I do, if I'm on a nonprofit board, if I'm a mayor of a town, what can I do in my footprint to lift democracy knowing that someone else is attacking democracy every day? If you're a mayor, do you have a recreation center where you should be registering voters? In Cincinnati, we have public health clinics. Are they registering voters? Those people going through those health clinics are the very people being purged by Frank LaRose. If mm-hmm. you're on a board of a homeless shelter, are you registering the people who come through? Uh, again, if, if you if you run an apartment complex, are you registering your residents? Think about are you helping a state rep candidate? Are you subscribing to the local paper that is dying? Every, there are so many things we all can do to start fighting for democracy, not by just volunteering one day to go register voters, but in everything we do every day. And the book goes through a lot of specific ways that everyone, I hope, can think about that.
0: David Pepper, thanks so much for taking some time to unpack a little bit of all that's going on in this book. I recommend that people uh, take a look at it. We'll be providing links and show notes and in social media, etc. So read it. And thanks, David. Wonderful. Thanks so much. Take care. Many thanks to David Pepper for joining me on the show. As always, we've got lots of links and follow-up items in our show notes at prognosisohio.com and wcbe.org. It's under the podcast experience tab. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Dan Skinner. The music was produced by Kyle Rosenberger. To learn more about Prognosis Ohio and check out our evolving social media presence, please visit our website at prognosisohio.com. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. We'll be back in your podcast feed soon, next time with a discussion about a range of issues regarding Ohio's Asian American community, so make sure you're subscribed. Thanks for listening and be well.